0: Glad you could join us for the third episode of the Innovators Mindset podcast with the iMOOC group. We are really excited to have uh, Caleb Rashad uh, join myself and Katie Martin. He is doing some really amazing things. You'll feel his energy pop out of the sound. Um, Absolutely amazing guy and some really great conversations on really focusing on the importance of relationships and education and how they bring innovation to life. I really hope you enjoy it. Looking forward to uh, hearing your feedback on our conversation, and I know you're really going to enjoy Caleb. Uh, this is George Kuros with uh, Katie Martin and special guest Caleb Rashad actually joining us today. We are so pumped uh, to be here. If you've ever actually uh, encountered uh, Caleb, he is insanely high-energy very visionary leader, uh, and so we were really pumped to actually uh, join him. We've really been happy with um, all of the blog posts, all the sharing, people in different spaces, um, connecting in, in different areas. Um, and it's just been fascinating to watch some of your growth, some of your challenges, and I think it's making us all better. Um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Caleb, and he's going to introduce himself, and uh, Katie's going to take over, but we are so happy you could join us tonight, and we look forward to the conversation. So, Caleb, can you just... Uh, let us know uh, so people know who you are and what you're all about, what you do.
1: Hey, hey, what up, what up? I am so glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I am Caleb. I am a director, like a principal kind of person, at High Tech High. It's a high school that serves grades 9 through 12. we got about just under 600 kids. we got 13 schools total. I run one of them, along with an incredible team at High Tech High. Um, we are a project-based learning school. We're a school that's really first and foremost about equity and making sure that we get the most out of every single person and um, helping kids like find their passions and purpose in this life. And so um, I'm really stoked to be there. This is my first year there. In fact, I've only been there about 60 days. And so um, I'm thrilled to be a part of the team, learning a lot myself. Um, uh, I am um, stoked to be here today and part of this conversation.
2: Awesome. Well, we are super excited to have you, Caleb. Um, I get to work with you in a lot of different ways. being that whoop whoop. the way you go, So it's awesome.
1: <laughs> My girl.
2: Super excited to share your energy and all that you're doing with yeah, uh, the rest of the mind. world tonight. So one of the things we have um, people all over the world are reading the innovators mindset together. They're reflecting, they're sharing ideas. And this next section is about laying the groundwork and really what leaders and teachers are doing to lay the groundwork to create that culture of learning and innovation. And I know you are super passionate about this and I'm gonna throw back a tweet that you you shared this morning. So I'm gonna ask you to share your thoughts. How might we grow a nation of change makers, innovators, creators, entrepreneurs, edge finders, disruptors, and social architects? What do you think?
1: Holy crap! I talk a lot. Uh, um, wow. Yeah. You know what? It is a wonderful idea, and it is just an idea until you can get the right people together um, and have the right relationships with each other, with each other, and the right sense of like orientation about like who we are in this moment, who we've been in the past, and who we might need to become in the future. That is like to me. Like when we look at like laying the foundation, it is like there. It is about the relationships between um, each person and all of us collectively. That's like looking internally, internally about like who you are, what you believe, what your assumptions are that might be buried and maybe unarticulated or unearthed, and then bringing that out consciously about like who we want to become to be able to meet the needs of our kids. As a um, director at High Tech High, equity is like our thing. And when I kind of, when I mention equity, what we're talking about is like um, how to meet the needs of every single um, learner in our ecosystem and bring out the, their strengths, their interests, their talents for the world to be able to use them in some sort of way. And so when you're talking about something as organic as that, it is not something that can, can be contrived by some mastermind. I do not have all the best ideas, number one. Or the leader person doesn't have all the best damn ideas. So how do you like cultivate the creative genius of the group?
2: I love that.
0: I've... How do you do that?
2: So I'm going to ask
0: Katie, can I jump in? I want to ask Caleb something you when you talked about this you're new to that school though right so this is a question that people ask all the time what do you when you're new and you're the principal or you're the leader of the building what do you do first what's the first thing that you because it's a very compelling vision but you have no idea if those if the people that are in that building i'm sure you have some you know familiarity with them how do you get them to like what do you do to move towards that vision when you you're the new person in the building Yeah, that's a great question. So let me jump right on it. So day
1: one together, my first time in front of the whole staff, the number one thing, at least what I did intentionally, was to let them know who I am and like what I care about and what's important to me. And in that space, it's important to demonstrate that you are human, that you are vulnerable, that you are open, and you have to like, not just be open like with your ideas, but it has to come from a place like deep in your heart. And I think this may be one of the great challenges, especially in risk averse organizations like public schools. We tend to be very risk averse. And so showing your inside, showing your hopes and dreams and fears, that can be seen as weakness. And I suggest that it is our first piece is to to like Let the world know who we are, what's important to us, and, 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 and allow people to see you, to be seen about what's important to you. So that's what I did on the first day. On our first day together, it was about my story, why I'm part of this work, why I came to High Tech High, because, hell, I had a job before I got here, and why I was in that space. And then gave people a chance to talk about it. So one of the great currents of trust development is dialogue. It is such a simple thing, but not a very common thing. And when I talk about dialogue, I'm not talking about dinner conversation. I'm not talking about debate, but I'm talking about specifically about thinking together. There is a wonderful body of work that's done by William Isaacs I, out of um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology called the Dialogue Project. In the Dialogue Project, William Isaacs talks about like the practices, the behaviors, and the mindsets that it, that's required for people to engage in dialogue. And if there's one or two things I would point out, it would be number one, the suspension of judgment Number two, the co-creation of ideas. In fact, William Isaacs talks about it in this way. He says, when people are engaged in dialogue, they talk to the center, not sides, by the way. They talk to the center. And there seems to be like this river, this flow of conversation that happens together. And so in my first day with our peeps, it was, yes, this is who I am, this is what I think, this is what I believe. I'm gonna open it up for you for examination and then I'm gonna give you an opportunity to like engage in dialogue about what you heard from me, what connects with you, where you may be different and then engage us in more dialogue about what's important to us individually. When you engage in dialogue and create psychological safety for people, woo, let me tell you, people will come out, teachers, people, human beings want to be heard But in an age where we're constantly distracted with this and that, the ability to be able to pay attention to another person is a valuable thing.
2: It is. And I I think that I saw you the first day that you had with your teachers and you were so excited because you had a great day talking and engaging. There was no curriculum mapping or planning. It was about what you wanted to do as a school and really where you want, what your vision was. So that's amazing. Um, I know something that everyone's really interested in is your, your passion and your, what guides you around human-centered design. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that guides your work?
1: How much time do I have? Three minutes? Okay, <laughs>
2: Three
1: minutes. Okay. 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 holy crap. Okay, so my, I'll start here with my dissertation research. My research is about how principals engage in trustworthy behaviors that teachers, that creates the conditions where teachers feel willing to trust them. In other words, what does a principal do and what are the school practices that support trust development among the principal and the teacher, between the teacher and the principal, and among the teaching staff, the teaching faculty? There are at least, I'm gonna point out two or three things that were key. Number one was that the principal seemed to see them as whole people and not just as cogs in a machine or workers in a factory or teachers just who teach. Number two, principals in these environments um, had a great sense of empathy and openness. Not just openness with like information, not just openness with like sharing decision-making, but an openness in their heart. Like every single teacher felt like they knew the heart of the principal. Number three, teachers had voice, choice and autonomy. So as I think about human-centered design, and there are lots of different models by which we approach human-centered design, but if there were three common elements to all human-centered design work, it starts with number one, human empathy, understanding who people are, what their strengths are, what their interests are, what their values are, what they are fearful about, what they hope, empathy. The second part um, that's common to every design phase is going broad to go narrow, that is ideation and then the selection of an idea. Number three is around rapid prototyping to test ideas. And in using human centered design, it is an opportunity for um, people to be seen, to be heard, their voices to be included, And to move beyond just collaboration to co-creation. And when you co-create, you're coming in with a strong point of view. And the point of view that I came in with, with our people at High Tech High, was what do we believe? That's our point of view. And then how do we co-create together? And I use design to kind of help us do that.
0: So Caleb, I I gotta ask you this question because it's, uh, It's really specific to you, to be honest with you. When I listen to you, there is no doubt that you are visionary in what you're trying to create. But there's another element of it when I listen to you is that you have a certain passion and... I think, like, I, I was, we were talking right before, I like, I wanted, to, like, I was telling Katie and Caleb, like, I read Caleb's email and I wanted to go start a new school. Like, <laughs> he has this amazing ability to get people fired up about what they're doing. So the question I want you to think about, or, like, to maybe maybe share your thoughts, and Katie, you, you're you more than welcome to jump in. What happens when you don't have maybe the same personality? Can Can a school still... Like move forward because there's a certain you know energy that you have, and I and I've seen a lot of great leaders that don't necessarily have that energy. And there's actually been feedback. There's actually been you know a lot of uh, studies on this. Is that sometimes the people that are you know the more energetic, the more passionate, the enthusiastic, um, the school, the organization is built around them. And as soon as they leave, it tends to fall off. And so. How do you, how do you temper that where it's not your energy and enthusiasm becoming the culture and it's dependent upon it? Do you know, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but makes there sense. is a the difference because what happens when like, there's going to be, there could be a lessening of energy when you go and, and how will that make an impact in your school?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to go like old school John Wooden on you. So John Wooden had like this pyramid of success. And at the top of the pyramid was competitive greatness. And I think no matter what role you play in a school, you have to have a certain sense of competition, either with yourself, with others, et cetera. Secondly was about industriousness. There is like no substitute for just getting after it and doing hard work. Number three was on the, the third vertice of that um, pyramid was around enthusiasm and the energy that you bring to a space. I realize my blind spot with my energy and enthusiasm. There is great work done in this book. I think it's called Multipliers. And it's about like being aware of your effect in multiplying um, good or bad, your strengths and weaknesses in an organization, especially as you lead it. So one of the things I'm very conscious about, and I think that might be helpful for others who may not have, quote, uh, uh, similar sort of enthusiasm. I would say, look inward towards your passion, number one, and develop the ability to tell a story around it that helps you articulate who you are and why you're in your space, why you do what you do and why you love it. And when you do that, it doesn't matter whether you're called on five minutes before or you've got a week to plan, you can talk from a place that's real and authentic and you can't BS it, number one. Number two, you need a process to help support you. So I started with just looking at yourself first, like who you are, why this work matters to you and being able to articulate it in a way that is authentic because it matters. You can't like be an empty suit. Sorry, if you're an empty suit, you are probably not gonna be able to make much progress. That's what the research says. At least that's my opinion too. Number two, is process. And one of the reasons why I um, love design is because in design, it, it's, it's about everybody's voice and not just mine. And so one of the things I'm very sensitive to is the role of a, being the role of a, of a facilitator. And the strict role of, of a facilitator is tight on process, low on content. And what that does is it says, my job is to control the process or manage the process by which we engage in dialogue and discussion, make decisions about where we wanna go and who we wanna be. And it's less about what I think personally. So it's a really weird dynamic, right? Cause I just said, open up, talk about yourself. And at the same time, um, use some sort of process. And in my case, we use a lot of human-centered design as a process to lean on when you're not sure where to go so that all voices are heard and it's their voices. And what's more powerful than their voices? And so the issue becomes, how do we like, like cultivate the voices of the group to engage in dialogue, to make decisions about what's important to us and then chart a way forward? That's their voice.
0: I, I really, I really appreciate this, and I'm like, I'm hoping there's a, there's, you know, people are jumping in, and, and uh, if they miss this now, I hope they're listening, because I think that, that that process on connecting with human beings is so crucial, and uh, we're actually gonna we're gonna tap into this in the one of our questions. So, uh, Caleb is actually going to join us for the questions uh, this week. So uh, we've been doing oh. rapid fire five five, uh, five questions for three minutes. We're gonna change it up a little bit because Caleb's with us. So we want to make sure that we have an opportunity to hear all of our voices so we're gonna do four questions four minutes um but i'm gonna pose the first one and i think it's uh I think it ties in beautifully to what caleb is saying and so um caleb caleb knows the show of the interruption so we're gonna actually uh we're gonna be tight on this time so if i jump in and cut someone off the time is the time so um, the first question talks about, uh, in the book, we're talking about, about part two, we're talking about laying the foundation, which is why we brought Caleb here, especially as someone who's new to his school. And it talks about the connection between relationships and in, in innovation, that if you want to be innovative, relationships are extremely crucial. So what are your thoughts? Either Katie or Caleb, please jump in. So
2: I'll jump in. Um, one of those things that, and I think to Caleb's point, if people don't feel safe and they don't feel like there's an opportunity to take risks, they're gonna be worrying about where they're gonna get in trouble, not thinking about how they can do better for kids. And I think George, one of the things you point out in the book is do people ask for permission or do they ask for guidance? And if people are always in a place where they have to ask for permission and they're always wondering what someone else is gonna say and they're not free to think for themselves, this is not a place where people can really be innovative. So they have to know that someone trusts them, someone cares about them, and someone feels like they're capable of making decisions.
1: Yeah, and I would add on to that, what I learned from the great Dr. Shigala who introduced me to Doug Seedman, was around the idea of a TRIP, T-R-I-P. So however you define innovation, we're all trying to get to progress in our organizations. And the T is for trust development. In my case, I would say push for relational trust, trust development, the second, uh, R is um, um, risk-taking, innovation, and progress. T-R-I-P, trust development, risk-taking, innovation, progress. So even if we kind of get away from the buzzword of innovation, if we're just making progress in the schools, what does that process look like? It has to start with trust, relationship, development. That And there is a science to that, and it's not exactly algorithmic, but it's possible in every organization.
0: There's a a really actually, like, I've noticed this, and being in a position that, you know, is not the norm in education where I travel around um, and, uh, you know, go to different schools and see what's happening, there's kind of a weird correlation is that the... The easier for for me to get there and, like, the hoops that I have to jump, like, you know, you have contracts and how you get paid and all this other stuff, because I work with so many different organizations, I often see a correlation uh, between how innovative they are and how easily it is for me to start working there. And and the kind of the, the reason I believe behind this is that... Um, with all the hoops that I have to jump, it's not an exception to me. It's the norm. And so if I have to jump hoops to do anything, people just say, um, you know what, I'm not even going to bother. And and the reason why, and like you read like any Stephen Covey stuff, he talks about the speed of trust. The more you trust people, the quicker things happen, right? Like when I, you know, when I call like um you know, for a flight and I want to change something or whatever, going through that, you know, if someone has to go through six different people for me to make something, how much money do they actually just waste because they don't trust the person to make the right decision at the beginning? That's a a really crucial component. I I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that.
1: Absolutely. Well, look, um, there is a way to actually measure trust. Bizarre as that sounds, there is a way. Uh, At the university, uh, Ohio State University, there is an instrument called the the Omnibus T scale. And it's um, sectioned off by elementary, middle, and high school. In that work, they talk about how to measure it quantitatively, by the way. Um, And then secondly, um, using that framework for trust development, there is a way to build trust within organizations that's real and authentic and organic. If the trust level is low, it increases like one sense of like risk and exposure and vulnerability and people will turn inward and say, no, thank you. If trust levels are high, you have a greater chance of doing greater innovation in that space. So there are both quantitative and qualitative ways to look at what sort of trust development currently exists in organizations.
0: And you know what, Caleb, I'm going to be honest, you, you need to not reference so many books because my wife is actually tweeting about how smart you are and this is all I'm going to hear about tonight. I so,
1: <laughs>
0: actually just tweeted, I'm like sitting there because she's like sitting and she's like, listen, Caleb is so amazing, the vast amount of knowledge and passion he has. He has quoted six or seven books from memory. I'm sitting here, how do you know? How many you are actually quoting all these things and all these, like I know who John Wooden is but I can't go through this. So just kind of ease up because you're going to make it really, uh, <laughs> I don't tonight is, for, is about you from my wife. So thank you for sharing that. Um, the next question we're going to talk about um, is the idea of the four minute, uh, sorry, uh, school teacher versus classroom teacher. And this is actually a really important component to me. When we actually have educators in school, do they look at their class as kind of the end all be all or do they look at every child in that school as their kid and I think that's a really crucial element of when we talk about innovation, when we talk about you know school culture is that do we actually you know if a kid we don't know their name do we actually you know send them to the office or whatever or do we actually get to know this kid? Do we see like you know supervision as not a burden of something we do but an opportunity to get to know kids that you might not actually interact with on a daily basis? So is there any Do you see kind of some of those connections to what you're doing uh, in your work versus like with the notion of a school teacher, which every kid is, you know, our kid, as opposed to a classroom teacher?
2: I'll go and jump in on that. And then, Caleb, you can share the experience. Um, I think when you think of teachers in school and education and teaching can be very isolating. You're in your classroom all day with your kids and if we don't reach out and we don't get to know the rest of the kids, we don't get to know teachers, we can be very isolated in our own practice and become this classroom teacher. So I think that it's really important to work with all teachers and not just know the students on campus. I know George, you're talking about the students, but when you work with your colleagues and you think about how you can improve practice for everybody, a school teacher is about collectively making the learning environment better for everybody for the teachers on campus, for the students, so that everybody is excited about being there. Everybody is working together to collectively improve outcomes for kids. And I think that when teachers leave schools or they move on, it's because the working environment is not sustainable and not conducive to that risk-taking and innovation. And I think it's really important for us to think about how we work collectively to improve, improve that for everybody. And make and make make that school environment something that we all want to be part of.
1: Yeah, I would definitely double down on that all day long. I mean, um, school has a history of idness isolation, and so one of the challenges is shifting to a more of a we-ness versus individualism and that sort of thing. I think one of the things that um, one of the things I would point to that has been incredibly impressive in my first like. 60 days or so at high tech high is how um, how important the the value of relationship has been like um a part of the organization's like structure and so here's an example the value is relationship and so if we value relationships tremendously then um, and maybe even number one of everything else they say we don't care so much about content but we care about people and kids it makes you like say maybe our instructional minutes isn't so important in terms of maximizing every single second on instruction and maybe it puts us in a place where we put in systems that are explicitly about relationship and connection development here is one example of that because i know we're short on time We have something at at High Tech High that I'm learning about, and I suck at it really right now, but I'm learning. It's called advisory. And advisory is this place, and the spirit of this, I learned this from John Santos, one of the teachers there who's brilliant. He says that the purpose of advisory is to make sure that every single kid has one person that will always be in their corner, no matter what, from ninth grade through 12th grade. For four years. So the reason I bring that up is because we take instructional time and dedicate it to advisory every single week. The expectation with advisory is we make home visits, we make personal contacts with kids, we make sure they're on track to go to college, and I mean details about going to college, not just, hey, let's go to school. It is details about check boxes and making sure applications are done, and essays are written, and they're done with Great fidelity and high quality. The point is, is that um, when the organization, the ecosystem, has this value around relationship first, how might we re, um, reimagine the day to ensure that we've got rich structures that allow um, these deep relationships to occur?
0: And I think that's a, a really crucial component. Is that. When you see the relationship, when you talked about the notion that sometimes, you know, you might not, you know, we put all this time in curriculum, but do you see that time that you invest in kids, invest in staff, is investment, not expenditure. So sometimes, you know, a staff member would come to me, talk to me about something that had nothing to do with school, maybe something in their personal life. That 10 minutes would go back, I would get a 1,000 minutes back because I was willing to take the time with them. And I think that's a really
1: Exactly. If I can quote Mike Strong, one of the great teachers, he's been at 13 years at High Tech High. Great wisdom, great insight. He says, and I heard him tell tell the kids this on the very first day of school. He told the kids, You can call me and the teachers give out their cell phone numbers. No. And when they do, when Mike did it, he said, You can call me at 8 p.m. or 2 AM. It doesn't matter. You get a hold of me anytime you need it. I might not always pick up the phone. <laughs> but I will always, a, will always get a hold of you as soon as I can. Mike Strong, I'm telling you, and Mike Strong is an example of many of the, of the practices and the ecosystem. of when it says relationship is important, not just like um, bumper sticker, but like with qualitative, rich practices that are about community and deep relationships, it's powerful stuff, brother so,
0: the, so the next the next uh, kind of statement or question or discuss is this notion of to innovate, disrupt your routine, and this is a, a really powerful component. There was a really great story about you know a CEO of a company, you know, having all of them, uh, all the they are they were uh, working at a um, for an airline, and all these CEOs who always fly business class were talking about ways they could actually, um, you know make economy seating better for the participants. but none of them actually you know ever flew economy seating. And what I was fascinating about it um, was he actually took the beds out of their hotel rooms and then put in, replaced the beds with economy seating. And the next day, the next day, tons of ideas. And so the, the the moral of that story is basically if you want people to think differently, um, you actually have to disrupt the, what they've always done. And so just a kind of thought, like, how do you actually disrupt your routine? as well as like so that you're continuously growing and learning, but how do you as a leader or you know, you know, working with other schools, how do you actually disrupt the routine in meaningful ways of, of those that you work with?
1: If you want, I can go ahead and jump in on that one.
0: Um,
1: I, I love this this topic of disruption, both individually, et cetera. So here's where I would go with that. Probably one of the most important chapters in the innovators mindset is I mean there are No disrespect, George. Um, You're all (laughs) good. Chapter two (laughs) around the mindset. And the mindset is really about like perspectives and frames of reference mentally. It's like your mental models, right? It's like how you see the world and your ability to be able to see things new for the first time. Whether it's yourself, whether it's the way you think about things, whether it's the stories you tell yourself, whether it's the stories we tell ourselves, whether it's the story we see about the work we do. So I, I think when we look at this like issue around, like um, how, I think you have to start with like um, the frame of reference by which we see ourselves because we, we tend to just kind of go with the flow, go with the pattern. Culture is like one of those things it's all around us. It's like a fish in the ocean. The fish doesn't know that it's completely surrounded by the ocean, it's all around us and culture is the same way it's like if if you don't pay attention to it it can like swallow you up and spit you out um and at the same time it's like um uh, what are those things that we think to ourselves we say to ourselves that that are patterned ways of behavior of thinking and acting once we become aware Once we become aware, then we can start looking at what may be alternatives. So one of the things that's been fabulous for me personally, as not as a director or any of those other things, is just applying design to my life. Like, like what are the things that I say and do and, and think and feel? And what does that say about, like, what's really important to me? And then how do I, like, design? What might be some things I can do that might help me to like um, live more coherently between what I say and what I do, what I think and what I feel. And how do I bring those universes together more intentionally um, versus randomly or by chance? And so um, there's lots of great work out there about designing your life, um, design the life you love. I mean, um, Bernie Roth's new book from Stanford D School talked about the exact same thing about um, um, the achievement habit it is very simple. So before you can start disrupting the world, before you start disrupting school and disrupting groups and schools and communities, it's about the mirror in your life, not the window, right? Look in the, look in the mirror and say, hey, what, what's your, uh, how are you disrupting yourself?
2: I love that, and we start with that a lot. What is it that, who are you? And what are, you mentioned it before, what are your biases? What are your, what's your orientation, which are towards life and towards, you know, that's really important to think about. So one of the easiest ways or one of the most impactful ways that I think is really important for teachers, especially to disrupt their routine is to get out of their classrooms. So often they are in their classrooms all day with the same kids. And like you said, the culture, it can swallow them up. They're so used to the way things are, they tend to think it's the only way things can happen. So when you can get teachers out of the classroom on a regular basis to go and see another classroom, to go and see other kids, it can be so powerful. And if, you know, if you're open to it and you're ready, you can learn something from any classroom. And I think beyond that, we need to talk to kids. The more we talk to kids, we think we know what's happening and we've gone through school, so we understand this process. But we need to talk to kids about what they're learning and what they're thinking and what they're interested in and disrupting your routine in that way is a really powerful way of just understanding the experience for the kids that we're providing. Um, so those are two really important ways that teachers and administrators get in classrooms as much as you can and find out what's going on.
1: Can I drop another piece in there, too? Yeah, please. Okay, so uh, it just based on Katie's, I mean, just great insight right there. It made me think about this idea called cross-pollination. In um, David Kelly's book, The 10 Faces of Innovation, he lists out 10 of these persona profiles that they look for when they try to drive innovation. One of them is called the cross-pollinator. And the cross-pollinator role is to um, um, break down silos intentionally. These are people who love to get out and not just see what's, in, what's happening in other classrooms, but what's happening in other industries what's happening in, in other organizations overall. So here's an, here's an example of that, when, if, I, if I can, just really quickly. Um, so um, in the last school that I was in, um, there was a need for us to understand like, what's happening in the world of work. Many of the teachers had done professional development internally with the district. And so instead of me telling them, or instead of us just reading about it, what we did was we set up um, study groups to go out into the world of work, we found five organizations here in San Diego, like Qualcomm, Intuit, um, Baker um, the, um, the there's, a, there's a defense group here in San Diego. I can't remember the name of, the, of it right off the top of my head, but there were five organizations right here in San Diego. And what we did is give them um, a, a, a study assignment. And the assignment was very simple. It was three questions. As these teams of five to seven go out to each of these five organizations question number one was what sort of skills do you recruit for today. What sort of skills do you see as important tomorrow. And what can we do as schools to help support you in in those efforts. I did not go with them. The teachers went on their own. We call it the world of work project. And in that World of War Project, they came back on fire. They were like, yes, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to get it done. And I just said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go that way. It is powerful when we apply constructivist learning methodologies with adults.
0: So the last question I'm gonna, which kind of ties all of these things together, and we're gonna give you, th- we're gonna give three minutes for this last one, um, the notion of engage versus empower. Um, this is something I talk about quite a bit in the book. That the idea of that engagement is actually now a low bar. That if you none, and I always say this to groups I work with, no one in this room, including myself, is as interesting as YouTube. So if our, if our goal is to engage, we can actually just throw kids on YouTube all day and they would be totally engaged but how do you actually with an influx of information um, how do you actually look at empowering kids and and is there do you see any disconnect or do you, is there anything you disagree with that notion of you know and it's and a lot of people say well don't kids need to be engaged well absolutely but the thing that I always say is that if you if you're engaged it doesn't mean you're empowered but if you're empowered you're already engaged and I think, and so do you have any thoughts or ideas or how do you actually focus on empowerment? How do you actually go to that next level?
2: I'm gonna jump in really quickly cause this is something I feel really strongly about too. And you talk about engagement in terms of excitement but I've seen too many schools where engagement is qualified by how many kids are raising their hands how many whiteboards go in the air. And people <laughs> talk about engagement in terms of like our eyes on you. Um, there's reforms and programs and people that are coached to do this. And I think it's, it's it's a disservice to adults to really talk about engagement that way and to allow that to continue to happen. And we think I walk into a classroom and my kids have screens in front of their faces. So therefore they are engaged and it's not accurate. It's not right. It's not helping our kids learn in powerful ways. So. We need to move beyond absolutely this term of engagement. And we need to be, think about what that even means because I do think, yes, you want kids to be engaged and excited, but we have a lower bar for engagement even than that. So to get to empowerment, we really need to think about what is it that these kids wanna solve? What is it that these kids wanna do? What is something in their world that matters? That's how you empower kids. And that's how you empower teachers is to allow them. If you talk about all the things we talked about today to get into their problems, their ideas, their issues, and connect to other people, then they're empowered and they have opportunities to make decisions and do better for their kids in their rooms. So yeah. I think it is absolutely essential that we focus on this in schools.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would, I would just add to just the, the stream of thinking around like engagement and empowerment being like on this continuum and maybe not necessarily an either or, or different dimension, but there, but. There was this research done in this book called, uh, and I'm going to give you two last quotes, and that's it. I'm done. I promise. (laughs) Um, um, One of them is called The Coming Jobs War. And in the book, they talk about, like, the lack of adult engagement. And in fact, I think the number was, I'm probably wrong on this, but it's close. It's like 70% of people, adults in America, are disengaged or actively disengaged. And yeah. I, and as I think about what Katie just said, this is not just about intellectual engagement. We can routinely go through uh, cognitive tasks of doing our jobs. But what's that heart-mind connection? How do we get people emotionally engaged in their work? How do, it, it's unbelievable to me that we're even in the 70th percentile of something like it's ridiculous, right? And so so as I think about it like um, what are some of those practices that promote both intellectual and affective engagement in our work? One last reference is, and of course, I believe human-centered design is a way to get to do that. It's not the only way, but it is a way. The second reference is um, Laszlo Bach's new book called um, um, Work Rules. He's the senior vice president at Google, and he's got this great chapter. And the chapter is about um, if you really trust your people, really, really trust them. Don't say that you trust them and then you got all these kind of weird measures of checking and all that sort of stuff. If you trust them, really trust your people. And he says, he calls it, he says, um, um, trust people a little bit more than you're comfortable with doing. So as we look at the people in our organization, and for me, the teachers in my school, right, how do I apply that metric? how do I ap- apply that standard in my day-to-day and um, day-to-day interaction with people and in the structures that we create to say, I am not here to micromanage you. You are freaking amazing. you want to be here, you want to do badass work. So how can I help support you? My job is to create the stage where there are lots of principles out to be on the stage and, and I can do that, I can get on the stage. but really, I feel like it's our job to create the conditions. We create the frame for the artist to be able to do their work. And if you trust the process and more importantly, trust your people, they will paint amazing works of art that are both intellectually and affectively important to them and to the world.
0: So that's the end of the uh of our little discussion but we're gonna take two questions that were shared this week um and so just gonna kind of highlight a couple people that asked these questions the first one i'm gonna mention is jay Bolduck. and i always hate saying his name so i always think i'm messing them up
1: i know jay what up jay
0: <laughs> so his uh his twitter is is his twitter handle is at jay boldock mwe and he's from warsaw indiana oh and he asked should reflection be a solo or collaborative endeavor um so is this something reflection or are we just looking to do it ourselves or is it something that we want to actually maybe you know connect to others a lot more
1: in my in my view um i think there are three ways of thinking that should be pervasive in every organization especially as you look at it through the lens of learning for adults and learning for kids, three. One is divergent sort of thinking. How do we engage people in research, discovery, etc.? cetera? Um, and all this is around constructive sort of pedagogy of learning. One is divergent ways of thinking. The second is making sense of things. So that's um, convergent ways of thinking. Then there should be some action that you have to engage in to test your idea, to test your hypothesis. And then there should be some sort of reflection, right? And I think that whether you're looking at adult learning or student learning, there should be these rapid cycles, rapid cycles of divergent, convergent, and reflective thinking. And it should also happen in the classroom because it's an effective way to not just um, um, receive as a consumer of information, but to be able to transform information and maybe to produce new information and new insights.
0: Katie, what's your thoughts?
2: I think, Caleb, to do that, I think, into this question, I think it has to be both. We need to reflect. We need to take time for ourselves to process, get to that white space of really thinking about what is it that we're seeing? What are these different ideas? Um, but we can't stop with just ourselves. We have to go back and test our ideas and think about and discuss what we're think- what we're learning with other people. Um, so it can be in blogs. It can be on Twitter. It can be... Um, In conversation, it can be in collaboration, but I think that we need to do both of these things and always be reflecting about our impact, what we're learning and how we can do better.
0: And just to kind of summarize, one thing I really believe, and I know uh, both of you actively, openly reflect on your learning, is that I really believe that when you share your thinking, it is better for two sides. And the first side is that when you know your reflections will actually be seen by other people, it makes you think deeper about them, which actually makes you refine them. And I know that, you know, I know Katie, you know, my experience, you know, talking to her, I know she thinks a lot deeper. I I gave her a a gentle, a very gentle nudge to uh, blog. And, uh, and you can see that she thinks a lot, you know, just talking about the process, she talks about how she thinks a lot more about what she does. And I know personally doing this as well, um, I, I always actually think about who's going to disagree with me, what, how will they disagree, and actually trying to actually figure out that other side when I'm writing so that it doesn't necessarily come up in a comment. And you're trying to think about other people's perspectives when you're sharing this learning, but you don't necessarily do that. Um, when you're actually just reflecting your own and you and you hide it somewhere. The other part of it too is that when you share your learning with others, um, it actually makes an impact on them obviously as well, because there's great things that even if they don't agree with you, if you can get, make someone else think, it's going to make a huge impact on their learning moving forward. So I think that it's great to do some reflection on your own. It doesn't mean everything you have to do has to turn into a blog post or you have to tweet about it, but there is an impact on both parties when you actually do this. And so... Um, The last question we'll take uh, is from Ryan at R2 Classroom from Aurora I think, Colorado. How do we sustain innovation for students K-12? How do we continue this so it's not, and this is like the big question of the book, how do you move from pockets of innovation to a culture of innovation where this is just what we do in our schools, not just some teachers do this?
2: Yeah, and to build on that, I think that, if we're looking at it in terms of innovation, just to innovate, that's not sustainable. And you're gonna, you're gonna burn people out because you're always just trying something new. So for me, this question is really about how do we keep doing what's best for kids? How are we always looking inward and how are we always looking outside of our school to think about what we could be doing better and what we need to do to improve learning for kids? So it's almost, how is it sustainable if we're not innovating? How is K-12 sustainable if we're not always thinking about how to do better? We're going to get left behind and our kids are going to be learning and doing things in so many other ways.
1: I would say that if we want to um, look at like how to sustain the work that we're doing, I would say that it has to be at least through two lenses. One is through culture and people. And, And by culture, what I mean is like, um, the mindsets that we, the frames that we use to like frame problems, the mindsets that we use to frame problems. And then secondly, the processes that we use um, to help us um, identify needs before they become problems and um, being able to identify needs and being able to act on those needs um, with prototypes of some sort. And then there's the second part, as I mentioned, is people. Um, I think you have to invest in people whether it's investment in, the, in developing the team that you have or um, creating opportunities for those who do not align themselves with that, that value to be able to move on and recruiting people who do share that sort of fervor for the work that, you're, that the organization is trying to do. I think those are important pieces and you have to like address them. Like what's the culture? How do you develop this culture of sustainable innovation? I would argue it's around mindsets. Of the people in the organizations, and around processes that are that are inherently innovative um, in their approach and scalable at a number of different levels—individual, group, school—and then thirdly, the people. The people themselves, and um, investing in those people and getting those right people to um, work together in a way that has right—it has the right sort of chemistry.
0: And I'm going I'm to kind of try to bring this back to where Caleb started us. And sorry if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, but I think when Caleb, one of the things that I found him really passionate about right at the beginning was talking about equity of opportunities for kids, that every kid should have, you know, amazing opportunities to learn. And I think that if you really want to, if you really want to create innovation as a culture in your school, that it doesn't, it's not about starting from the viewpoint of the teacher. It's starting what does the child need and always moving backwards from there. And if you're looking at creating these amazing opportunities for every single kid in your school, no matter where they go, that is your starting point. What does the child need? What going from there? And I think it's a, it, we sometimes make the, this notion way more complicated than it needs to be. And I think that every single one of us as educators actually got into the profession because we love kids. If you got in the profession because you wanted to test them, that's messed up. There's something really wrong with that, right? Like we want you to actually, you yeah, know, baby. and we know that, that you have to do it. We know that it's, you know, some places you have to do this and you're, you're going to lose your job if you don't. But just remember that why we did this in the first place um, is to really actually connect. And so, uh, and, and to do everything we can for kids. And so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys a, an opportunity to share a final thought. But I just kind of want to thank everyone for joining tonight. Um, my wife is actually upstairs, and she's tweeting, watching everything with our beautiful daughter Kalia. Um, I see uh, Rachel Bath from uh, Australia. She's uh, Karen Trouts, Susan Can, who's one of the best, one of the most amazing people. Amy Barr, uh, Maureen uh, Pandola, Karen size, your, I, God, I can't say any of these names, but I just wanted to acknowledge you for taking the time on a Saturday night uh, to hang out. I know that for me, this was hugely worth it. Anytime I get to talk to Katie, um, I, I learn a ton. And C- Caleb, wow, just really, really want to pre- thank you for your time. Um, and so if you guys, if you want to, Caleb, if you want to share a final thought, just one big thing that you want people to take away from tonight.
1: Yeah, I, I think if there was any one big thing it would be to love the hell out of people. Um, meet them where they are and allow progress to happen naturally and don't try to force it. I mean, just literally love the hell out of people and disrupt as you can. Every organization is capable of progress um, and it takes patience. You have, you may have schools that may have a, a greater level of trust in those organizations and they may be more apt, more positioned to be able to take greater leads. And so... Um, And I think that's where that whole uh, innovator's mindset comes from. I mean, it, it becomes valuable is the ability to be able to go into a unique situation and be observant and understand what is the capability of the people here and what are the opportunities in being able to provide value no matter where you go.
2: Awesome. And Caleb, I could not be happier to have you here tonight and to share your genius, your love for people and, um, just the way you approach things. It's been really fun to have to just engage in this conversation like we yeah. get to do a lot, um, but to everybody else, I just wanna say thank you again for your blog posts, your reflections, your connections. Um, I love reading them. I've really enjoyed putting the pieces together of your thoughts and how you've um, added to this conversation. And I think George and I have really appreciated how you guys are commenting on one another's and you're making these connections. They go far beyond Twitter and Facebook and these as we've provided. Um, I'm seeing people support each other, reach out, make connections, and really think about how to um, disrupt their own routine and do things differently in their classes and schools and learning environments. So keep connecting, keep sharing, and we look forward to all of your thoughts this week. I know they're just going to be amazing.
0: And just to wrap up, I really want to thank everyone. I want to thank you guys for being here again. And one thing that I've been not learned but been reminded of in spades through this process is that innovation doesn't happen without inspiration and I see how you're inspiring one another so keep inspiring uh keep innovating keep being amazing thank you for joining us I look forward to uh continuously reading and and seeing what you share so we can learn from you as well have a wonderful evening
1: Tell me, Mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song?